The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of 2 John this morning. Now, this brief little letter was written to remind us of the command to love one another. Remind them. He's reminding them, you have this command, you received it from the beginning. But he's also warning them about traveling teachers who are teaching false doctrine. Now, in the first six verses, John talks about love. And we have seen that you can only truly love if you're walking in obedience to the Word of God. Because it defines for us what love is. Our Lord took the 613 commandments of the Tanakh and He boiled down to two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the way the New Testament has just outlined how we do that. If you love your neighbor, then you won't lie to them. If you love your neighbor, then you won't steal from them. You certainly won't kill them. If you love God, you will have no other God before Him. So the commandments teach us how it is we are to love one another. That's what they're there for. And that's what we're called to do, to love God and love one another. And you cannot live in love without walking in the truth of the Word of God. Now in verse 7, John's attention is drawn to the dangers presented to the church through these false teachers that were traveling around. Now we looked at verse 7 last week. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, the common error of the deceivers, the common error of these Antichrists is Christological. All right? Their doctrine of Christ is messed up. And he says here, they do not confess. They don't say the same thing that God says about the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. They regarded Yeshua as something other than God's anointed, the Christ, who had come in the flesh. Now, we talked last week about John's use of the present tense here of erkomai. And I said that I believe John uses the present tense here to speak of the abiding reality of the Incarnation. Namely, that Yeshua just didn't come in the flesh and then put off the flesh, but that He remained In the flesh. Now, let me clarify something. By flesh, I mean humanity, not physical body, okay? Christ now has a heavenly body made out of heavenly substance. The same thing we will have when we get into the spiritual realm. We'll have a spiritual body designed for the spiritual realm. When he says here, coming in the flesh, he means having come and continuing on in the flesh or in humanity. Yeshua was and continues to be fully God and fully man. Now, I received some questions about this last week, which I kind of anticipated because I'm thinking, all right, you know, when I'm going through stuff, I'm thinking, what are people going to ask questions about? What, what's a little bit maybe controversial or not known so well? well? Donna asked this. She says, is Christ in the flesh in heaven now? Or did He return to the same nature He had with the Father before the Incarnation? 
That's a good question. Donna was here with us last week, and she asked that question. Then last week I got an email, I think it was Monday, from Chris, and Chris asked this. He says, I have been under the impression that preterists generally hold to the view that Christ is no longer in the flesh, no longer man. Is there diversity of opinion on this in preterist circles? That was, that was my reaction. Chris, Chris, when I read this, I laughed. I'm like, <laughs> preterists disagree on everything, including the second coming. Okay, so yes, there's, there is definitely diversity on this. Now, both these questions are good questions, important questions. This is why I do question and answer. I want to know, what are you not understanding? What are you confused about? What can I clarify more? So, Because I, I want to do that. I, I want to come across as clear, and I want you to understand. So I want to spend a little more time on this this morning to try to clear this up. These questions arose because we're talking about the Incarnation. Again, as John makes clear, this is an important subject. This is where the heretics were off at. And so the question is about Christ's post-ascension state. After He rose. Is He still a theanthropic person? I want to try to answer that question this morning. This is important. Again, because the Antichrists are teaching a false Christology. So we want to understand, we want to make sure that our Christology is correct, that it is biblical. So let's start at the beginning. When did Yeshua come into existence? Wrong. Let me ask this question again. When did Yeshua come into existence? Okay, (laughs) at the Incarnation, there was no Yeshua before the Incarnation. An angel comes to a girl named Mary and he says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Why would they call him that? Because Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation. Prior to this people, there was no Yeshua. To this, Mary responds, as you can imagine, and Mary said to the angel, How can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born is called the Holy One, the Son of God. People, what we're seeing here is Yahweh had an offspring with a human woman and produced the Savior of mankind. Yeshua, John, explains it this way to us. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Became here is from the Greek genomai. It does not mean that the Word ceased to be what it was before. Rather, to His eternal deity, He added perfect humanity. Prior to this, the second person of the Trinity was the eternal Word. The Word always existed. But at a point in time, He added to His divine being humanity. He became the God-man. He became the theanthropic person. He became Yeshua. 
So you following me so far, you understand there was no Yeshua prior to the incarnation. There was always the Word, the second member of the Trinity. But at a point in time, the Word, who was God, became something He was not before, man. This joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. I know this is Theology 101, so, but this is important. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. Okay. The term hypostatic union is deri- derived from the Greek word hypostasis, which means personal. So the hypostatic union is the personal union or the joining of the two natures of Yeshua, namely His divine and human natures. Theologian Louis Burkhoff help shed some further light on this term nature and person as they relate to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He comments on this. He says the term nature denotes the sum total of all the essential qualities of a thing, that which makes it what it is. The term person denotes a complete substance endowed with reason and consequently a responsible subject of its own actions. Now, let's talk for a little bit what happened at the hypostatic union. Christ did not have two personalities because He had two natures. He was one person with two natures, divine and human. Now, because He is a man does not make Him any less God. Nor does His being God prevent Him from being truly man. The integrity of the attributes of His divine nature were not corrupted or compromised or diminished by the fact His divine nature was united permanently with a human nature. When Christ walked the earth, He walked the earth as a man, but He's the God-man, but Philippians 2 tells us He laid aside the prerogatives of deity, the kenosis. He self-emptied Himself. What does that mean? It means as he lived his life, he wasn't dependent on the God part of him. He lived it like a man, like we would, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible says he grew in understanding and wisdom. He grew because as a man, he was growing. He was learning to depend on the Spirit like we do. He can't be an example to us if he operated in his deity on earth because we don't have that. So that's what the kenosis is all about, the self-emptying. Did any of those attributes change? No. Were any of them subtracted? No. You can't subtract from God. You can't take away any attributes. He had them all. He just didn't use them. He functioned as a man. Nor were the integrity of those attributes of his human nature corrupted or compromised or diminished by the fact that he was God. Because he walked here as a man. His two natures, though united, retained their separate identities. There's no mixture of His divine nature with His human nature. His divine attributes are always united to His divine nature, and His human attributes are always united to His human nature. Deity remains deity, humanity remains humanity. The infinite cannot become finite, and the immutable cannot be changed. No attribute of deity was altered when our Lord became a man through the Incarnation, And the same holds true when he died on the cross. To take away a single attribute from his divine nature would be to destroy his deity. To take away anything from his perfect human nature, to take away a single attribute would destroy his humanity. The two natures of Christ are not only united without affecting the attributes of the two natures, 
but they are also combined in one person. Now, I know that's a little bit hard for us to understand because there's nothing like it to compare. All right? Shedd, in his dogmatic theology, writes this. Previously, previous to the assumption of the human nature, the Logos could not experience a human feeling because he had no human heart. But after this assumption, he could. Previous to the incarnation, he, he could not have a finite perception because he had no finite intellect. But after this event, he could. Previous to the Incarnation, the self-consciousness of the Logos was eternal only, that is, without succession. But subsequent to the Incarnation, it was both eternal and temporal, with and without succession. Prior to the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity could not have human sensations and experiences, but after, he could. The unincarnate Logos could think and feel only like God. He had only one form of consciousness. The incarnate Logos can think and feel either like God or like man. Okay, so far what we've talked about, there's not really much controversy in Orthodox theology, okay? Everybody's pretty much agreed. That's what happened at the Incarnation. That's the hypostatic union. That's the theanthropic person. And I want you to understand in your mind clearly now, Yeshua comes into being at a point in time. Did not exist before that. At the incarnation, the Word became flesh. Now we have Yeshua, the God-man. Alright, we're all on the same page. The disagreement comes with what happened after the ascension. He's resurrected, then He's ascended into heaven. What happened? And let me tell you right here that preterists are divided on this issue. And so I'm going to tell you here where I stand, and I'm going to tell you you need to be a Berean, you need to study this out, you need to do some research on your own, you need to do some digging. I want to share with you a historical position of the church. Church has always held this position, okay? And I think it's because it's pretty profound in Scripture, it's pretty clearly laid out, but there's many who disagree with this, all right? As I said last week, I believe the incarnation was permanent. If the hypostatic union was dissolved, there would be no more Yeshua. You with me? We got a new person, a God-man. You dissolve that union, and what do you have? Yeshua's gone. You have the Word again. So that's what people say, I guess. He just quit being Yeshua and went back to being the Word. Yeshua is the God-man. If one of these natures was removed... He would no longer be Yeshua. The Heidelberg Catechism says this. After His ascension, Jesus was localized in heaven and yet with His people no matter where they are. In theology, they call this localization without limitation. In other words, He was a he had body, He became a man, and so He's localized in heaven, but He's still God, so He's everywhere as his deity would have it. He says, according to his humanity, Jesus is not on the earth. But according to his deity, Jesus is never absent from us. The hypostatic union did not end with the resurrection or the ascension. Yeshua continues, Hebrews 6.20 says, as a high priest forever. 
And Hebrews also says that his high priestly office depends on him becoming like his brothers in every respect. He had to become humanity. So in the high priesthood that lasts forever, he is a human high priest. John Stott, a theologian, put it this way. The two natures, manhood and godhood, were united already at his birth, never to be divided. Shedd, in his dogmatic theology, writes, Though beginning in time, the theanthropic personality of the Redeemer continues forever. And then Shedd, in his theology, gives a couple proof texts. He says, first of all, he gives Romans 9.5, To them belong the patriarchs, talking to Israel, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God, overall blessed forever. Amen. So he says, Christ came according to the flesh, and he's forever going to be according to the flesh. Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and the idea of dwells there now forever, bodily. The word dwells here is from the Greek word katokeo, and it means to settle down and be at home. The present tense indicates that the essence of deity continually abides at home in Christ. And then Shed goes on and he adds Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, it says, we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. Hebrews is really strong on this, people. He had to become a man so he could be our high priest. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He forever is our high priest. But to me, one of the strongest verses on the permanence of the incarnation is what the writer of Hebrews says in 13.8. He says, Yeshua the Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now let's first talk about context. Okay, Context is king. This is not to be understood as some theological assertion that is unrelated to the context in which it's found. In other words, he's just going along, oh, let me throw this in, I want you to know about this. It's part of the context, all right? This verse is here to encourage them in the fact that he who yesterday was the source and object of triumph, their triumphant faith of their leaders, is still today the same powerful Redeemer and Lord and will continue so forever. And even though successive generations pass away, he's saying Yeshua the Christ remains the same. The Savior of the living as well as the departed and the Savior of all to the end of time. Now, he calls him Yeshua the Christ. The writer of Hebrews rarely uses this formula. He uses it three times, I believe, in the book of Hebrews, which I think makes it even more significant here. So who is the writer saying is the same? It's not a trick question. He's saying Yeshua is the Word. All right, he doesn't say the Word is the same. No. He says Yeshua the Christ. That people is the theanthropic person. That is the God-man. Yeshua the Christ. That's who it is that doesn't change. He's not talking about the pre-incarnate Word. He's talking about the God-man. And then he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday can only refer back as the Incarnation, because prior to the Incarnation, there was no Yeshua. As I said earlier, if the hypostatic union was dissolved, there would no longer be a Yeshua. So Yeshua the Christ could not be forever the same if this union was dissolved. 
Believers, there's a man in heaven, a God-man in heaven, who knows exactly what it is to be human, knows exactly what it is to be tempted, knows exactly what it is to go through pain and suffering. And the cool thing is, he's not just a man. He's God. He's able to do something about it. He's in control of it all. Continuing on this line of thought here, in his sermon on Pentecost, Peter said this, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So this is talking about David wanted to build a temple for Yahweh. But Yahweh wouldn't let him. But he gave David a promise. He says, when your days are fulfilled, this is 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who's this talking about? It's talking about Christ, Yeshua. God promised David that one of his seed would set on David's throne and he rule and he would reign forever. The Jews understood this to be the Messiah who was to descend from David. So thus far in the argument, Peter has proved that the Messiah must rise from the dead, ascend to his throne. Now he proves that Yeshua is the Messiah of whom David had spoken. He says in Acts 2.32, This Yeshua God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. All right. So, Yeshua is the theanthropic person. He is the promised descendant of David whose kingdom would be established forever. People, if the hypostatic union was dissolved, who would reign over the everlasting kingdom? Because it was promised to Yeshua. Again, I'm trying to... Drill this distinction in your head because there is a distinction. I think most of us just kind of obliterate that distinction. And the eternal word always was. And that's true. The eternal word was. But Yeshua came into a point of being at the incarnation. And he will always be that theanthropic person throughout eternity. He didn't take it on. See, this is what the heretics were saying. This is what the Antichrist were saying. He wasn't, he, stay, he didn't stay in the flesh. He couldn't do that. Well, I think John wants to stress here using you know, the verb tense to say, no, this is an ongoing situation. The hypostatic union doesn't end. How would you even do that? How would you separate? All right, now that you got that understood, let's go back to our text. Because of the threat of the deceivers, John warns them, watch yourselves. Watch here is blepo. It means to see. It's used metaphorically here of a warning against evil. And here's the thing, the important thing you have to understand here. He is talking to the church. He's talking about believers in the church. Watch yourself. He's telling believers, listen, be vigilant. Doctrinally. Be suspicious. Doctrinally. Be discerning. Be on guard because there's a lot at stake here, believers. John put it this way in 1 John. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits, to see whether they're from God. Test is a present active imperative. This is a necessity for every believer. We need to test the spirit 
people because there's a lot of false teaching out there. From the New Age movement to the Masons and the Mormons. All under the umbrella of Christendom. Within the church, there's a great variety of opinions. There are liberals who deny the supernatural. They deny the miracles. William Barclay, I've talked about him before, a great historian. He's good with the Greek. He's lousy with miracles. He doesn't believe in them. He just doesn't believe in miracles. Yeshua walked on the water. He said there was exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. I'm thinking that would be cool to see him dancing across these lily pads. I mean, you ever stepped on a lily pad? <laughs> I have. I never found one strong enough to hold me up. All right. Just, but that's what they, they just attacking the scripture. They're ecumenists that want us all to join together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. But we have some fundamental differences of doctrine. There's charismatics who want to add to the Bible. We had a new revelation. How many more new ones? Where are they? So who's right? How were they to test the spirits? Well, for them, they were to test everything by the teaching that came out of that apostolic circle. That's what the apostles were doing. To us, it's the Word of God. And we have the Word of God. And we can test everything that we hear by the Word of God. Now, this warning is so important today because preaching in churches is without content. It's not meant to teach you anything. It's meant to pump you up. It's like a cheerleading session, like a pep rally. Get you fired up. I don't know how long that lasts during the week, you know? The church today is theologically infantile. It's insepid. Church doctrine is not taken seriously or or even known by most most churchgoers. And let me just say, that's why I was so encouraged last week that I get these questions about the Incarnation. Most people can't say or don't know what the Incarnation is, and you all are asking questions about it. That, That is thrilling to me, okay? The truth is being lost today in the church in the name of tolerance and love. The church is trying to be relevant and it's becoming absolutely irrelevant. Because our, our calling is not to put on a show, it's not to make people happy, it's not to give them three points in a poem. Our calling is to uphold the Word of God. So John tells his readers, guys, you've got to watch yourself. False doctrine, it's out there. And believers, it's still out there. And today we can go on the internet or we can turn on the TV and you'll hear false doctrine blasted at you from every which direction, okay? And if the guy's a good order, then people just seem to buy into it without checking content. He says, watch yourself so that you may not lose what you have worked for. Now, there's a Greek manuscript variation here that I just want you to know about to this first person pronoun. Should it be you, as we have an ESV here, Or we, what the King James Version has. The USB 4, which is one of the things that rates manuscripts, it supports the you here. Meaning that believers are addressed might not accomplish the goals of the gospel given them by the apostolic circle. And this could refer to the good deeds that these readers had done so so that you don't lose. I don't want you guys, you in the church, I don't want you to lose what you work for. Then he says this, but that we have worked for. So John looks at like loss for his readers would involve loss for himself. 
Because he had a share in their lives. He had poured into their lives and he had brought them along. And he goes, if you guys give up now, I lose out too. I think this is similar to what Paul said in Galatians 4.11. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's speaking to the Galatians about the controversy that's going on there with the Judaizers. And he's telling the believers they had to obey the law and all the rights. That's what they're being told by the legalizers. You've got to obey all the law of Moses. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do all this. And he says, I'm just worried that all my laboring, all my work for you is going to be in vain. If you buy into this false teaching, I've just wasted my time. The things that we have worked for probably refers to the pastoral and the missionary efforts undertaken by the recipients of the letter in their own community and the surrounding communities to, to get out the gospel. And he's, he's basically saying our work's going to be lost if the opponents with their false teaching are allowed to come in and corrupt everything we've done. They'll destroy it. Now let me ask you this. What is it that, that is the danger of being lost in verse 8? What are they in danger of losing? Reward. He says, but may win a full reward. Now, the word reward here is misthos, which Strong says means pay for service, literally or figuratively, good or bad, higher reward wages. Okay, very important. Did you get that? Okay. The thing they'll lose is a reward. This is a term for a workman's wage. The payment he is due for the labor he has put in. What does this tell us? It tells us he is not talking about salvation. Do you get that from that text? It's a reward. Are you any of you being rewarded with salvation? If you think you are, then you're really in trouble. Because salvation is not a reward, it's a gift. But he's saying they might lose what they had earned, what they had worked for. R. Brown takes this as a reference to faith itself, and he says, to lose that for which one had been working, that is the reception of eternal life by those in the community being addressed. This is an assumption that cannot be borne out by the text. He's writing to the church. And this word here alone, how do you, how he connect, and this guy's not an idiot. He's a great theologian, but how do you connect salvation with a reward? I, I just, it's confusing to me how many people want to pull stuff into the text that, that's not in the text. John 10, 28, 29, he says this, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Who's saying this? Yeshua. Okay, you think he means this? They never perish, he means almost never, right? No, there's no, other, there's no word almost in there. You're not going to perish. And no one, he says, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now listen, the construction of the Greek clause here, they shall never perish, literally reads this way. They will indeed not ever perish. It is an especially strengthened expression. As a matter of fact, you couldn't emphasize it more in the Greek if you tried. Yeshua had previously said 
that part of the task the Father had given him to do was to preserve all those who the Father had given him. John 6, 37-40. So there's no way, hopefully we understand that eternal life is eternal. It's not temporary, it's not 10 years, it's not 5 years. It's not 10 years if you're good, all the way to eternal if you're really good. No, it is a gift that God gives. He says, I don't want you to lose your reward. This is talking about believers being rewarded for their service. Now, no one spoke more about heavenly rewards than our Lord Himself. Our Lord says this in Matthew 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Hmm. Got that, Sharon? (laughs) I did. (laughs) Where moth and rust or fire destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures. That's where our treasures are to be. Now listen, the terms treasures on earth and treasures in heaven here were familiar to the Jews at that time. They had many sayings regarding almsgiving and piling treasures in heaven. So Yeshua is speaking in a vernacular that they understood. They believed that deeds of mercy, the deeds of kindness to people in distress were tantamount to storing up riches in heaven. So he's using their language. They got this. Now believers... I want to say this, and please understand what I'm saying here, because I think there's a lot of confusion about rewards among Christians today. All right, Some just view it as salvation's a reward, and that's it, we're done. So when anybody talks about rewards, we just talk about salvation. That's not what Yeshua is saying here, okay? And I think it would be a form of self-righteous pride to say that even though Yeshua told us to lay up treasure in heaven for ourselves, We don't really want to do that because we just want to serve out of gratitude. Sounds pious, doesn't it? It's self-righteous pride. Because Yeshua said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And may I tell you, in the Greek, this is not a suggestion. It's a command. What? Yes, lay up treasures in heaven. Believers, eternal salvation is an entirely free gift which can never be lost, but the New Testament makes it plain that the believer must give an account for his or her Christian life in the presence of Christ. Look at Romans 14, 10-12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment, the Bema, of God. All of us. Every one of us. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one will give an account of himself to God. Now listen. Again, there's confusion on this. Paul is speaking here to the Roman church, to believers in Rome. And many here today will say, who are confused, well, audience relevance, you know, this this doesn't apply to us. He's talking to the Romans. Is that how audience relevance works? Huh? Because this to the Romans, we're discounted? You have to understand, you know, in a text, there may be time statements, there may be other statements that deal directly with that church. But here's how I understand it. When God is dealing with the church, we're the church, things that apply to them apply to us. Now, not everything, and therefore you have to apply audience relevance. 
But he's writing to the church, so what he's saying here is not strictly for the Romans, because he says the same thing to the Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, in the context here, it's clear in both incidents. Paul is addressing Christians, not unbelievers, Unlike the great white throne judgment of unbelievers, the Bema seat of Christ is not for the purpose of condemnation. There is no condemnation for Christians, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You'll never be condemned. You'll never be judged for any sin. Your condemnation has been paid for by God in full. So the Bema is not a judgment of condemnation. It's not a determiner of salvation. There are two purposes for the Bema seat. First, according to Romans 14, believers are to give an account of themselves to God. God gave us eternal life. Incredible gift. And then He asks us to serve Him, to honor Him, to live for Him. And most don't. So he's saying, well, someday you're going to have to give an account to me of what you've done with what I've given you. Give an account is an expression often used of keeping financial records. It's to Yahweh that we're going to answer to. What kind of account will we have to give? Well, our text in 2 John, the issue is guarding against false teaching. You know, people today will say, well, my pastor didn't teach that. And he's going to say, you know, it wasn't up to him. It's your job as a Christian, to be a Berean and to search the Scriptures. And you should have been at a different church. (laughs) Okay? If you think he's not teaching biblical, then get out of there. People go to churches for the stupidest reasons. You know? It's a family church. My family's been there all life. Yeah, and that's why they're all buried out back, because the church is dead. You know? And you got to move on. All right? you got to get somewhere where the Word of God is being taught. A second function of the Bema Seat of Christ is that God is going to reward us for our service. Now, I know that seems weird. I mean, God, my service should just be poured out to you. But he says, store up treasures in heaven. Okay, do that. Look what he says to the Corinthians. He says, so that each one may receive what is due, that's what you're owed, what? for what you've done. We're going to receive what we're due, what we've earned, for what we've done. This is not an isolated teaching in the New Testament. Yeshua said in Revelation 22.12, now here He's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. So again, He's writing to the church and He's telling here at the church this, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what He has done. In other words, believer, how you live is important. And I wish Christians would get this. Because Christians, you know, we got the, such a messed up bunch of theology here. You know, some Christians are saying, well, if you're really a Christian, you'll always do this and you'll always do that and you'll always be obedient. And you, yeah, I wish too. And you come along and say, no, if you trust Christ, you have eternal life and you may live for him and you may not. But listen, if you don't, you're going to answer someday. We're all going to answer for what we've done. Because we're not, God did not leave us here to just enjoy this life and ignore him. He left us here as servants. 
as image bearers. So when people look at us, they say, that's God working through that individual. And let me ask you something. This is not a a good thing, or to us it's not a good thing, but you know when people will see God the most in us, or when they should? It's in the midst of trial, in the midst of devastation. You know, when you're, everything's, you just won the lottery, and you're just happy and smiling, everything's wonderful, and your neighbor, your co-workers, your neighbor, no kidding, they love God. Look at all they got. But when you're going through hell, and people say, look at them. They love God. They're honoring God. They're saying, praise God. Then you demonstrate the reality of your God. How we live is important. Christ's death for us frees us from the fear of condemnation at the great white throne. And our abiding life frees us from the loss of rewards at the Bema. If the recipients of the letter were to allow the opponents to go unopposed with their false teaching, they'd run the risk of losing future rewards. That's what he's telling them. Be careful. If you receive God's gift of eternal life in Christ, the Bible teaches their rewards for serving Him. And every believer ought to be working for a reward. To hear on that final day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Believer, living in light of eternity is a motive for abiding in Christ. Living with the realization that you're going to face the Lord one day and you're going to give an account for how you live. John goes on in verse 9. Everyone, we're doing two verses today. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, if someone comes along and they claims to have some new teaching that can't be supported by the New Testament, he's not holding to the teaching of Christ. We need to be on guard against any so-called new teaching that people come up with. Now, John's purpose here is by stressing this to encourage his readers to resist the pressure being applied by the secessionist and to urge them to hold fast to the teaching. Now, notice here that the potential heresy is characterized by two present active participles. They go on ahead, and they do not abide. The first here, goes on ahead, may have been a catchword for the false teachers, implying, see, they were saying they had advanced knowledge. Yeah, we know that's what the Lord taught. We know the apostle taught this, but we got some new revelation here, and this is where you need to go. The words, goes on ahead, are from the Greek, proago. Ago means to go, and pro means before. So proago, to go before or to go ahead. So the meaning here is not so much to transgress. The King James translates this to gra- everyone who transgresses. It is a transgression, but that's not a good translation. They go further than what is right. Proago is a word that we derive our English word progress from. So what he's saying, the secessionist opponents are progressives. Okay? They're progressives. They've gone beyond what the eyewitness testimony said about Yeshua. They claim we got some special superior knowledge. And then he says they do not abide. Now, John's use of abide here indicates that he spoke of a vital personal relationship to God. Hopefully you're familiar after going through 1 John with this concept of abiding. When you go into error, you fail to abide in Christ. You're moving out with doctrinal error. 
And he says they're not holding to what? The teachings of Christ. This could be the teachings that Christ gave. That would be a subjective genitive, which is the standard of Christian teaching. Or this could mean the teaching about Christ, the objective genitive. They want to argue about this. I mean, commentaries ad infinitum. Listen, John probably meant both. Because that's what John does. He always uses double meanings. And so he's saying, these are the teachings that Christ gave, and these are the teachings about Christ. Yes, you go beyond either one of those, you are in trouble. The teaching refers to the truth that Yeshua is both fully human and fully divine. Now John says that everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching does not have God. All right, now again, you got to go back to 1 John and have an understanding of 1 John if you're going to get this. Because you read this, and if you're just coming along, you say, they don't have God. And so you're going to say, they don't have God. I guess they're lost, right? And most commentators say this means they're not Christians. Hall Harris writes, it's clear from the author's statement here that he does not regard the secessionist opponents as genuine believers. Another commentator says, you have not God. Now, this is serious stuff. Salvation is at stake. At stake? You can get it and lose it? Listen, does not have God needs to be interpreted in light of Johannian literature. What does John mean by it? Because he's the one writing this. We've got to understand what the author is saying. In John's literature, this is synonymous with knowing God. It's synonymous with having fellowship with God. It's synonymous with abiding in God or Christ. Remember, John is writing to Christians And what John is conveying here is that whoever goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have the Father abiding in him. And he is therefore not walking in the light. The one who goes ahead does not have the abiding relationship with the Father. Remember, the secessionists claim to have fellowship with God in 1 John 1.5. They even claim that they live in God in 1 John 2.6. But such claims are empty when made by people who deny that Yeshua is the Christ come in the flesh. John wanted his re- he warned his readers of the dangers to their intimate fellowship with God that the teaching of those who denied the Incarnation would pose. If they reject the Son of God who come in the flesh, they would not be in an intimate relationship with God because they were not confessing what God was saying. Zane Hodges writes this. He says, The principal source of confusion in much of contemporary study of 1 John, and this, of course, goes for 2 John, 3 John also, is to be found in the failure to recognize the real danger against which the writer is warning. The eternal salvation of the readership is not imperiled. It's not even in doubt as far as the author is concerned. But seduction by the world and its anti-Christian representation is a genuine threat which must be faced. People, when you as a Christian embrace heresy, you abandon the abiding relationship. You abandon the Father and the Son as far as intimate fellowship. Because orthodoxy is not just a matter of holding to biblical truth, it's walking in biblical truth. That's why we study, not just so we can know, but so we can live. He says, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. By abiding or remaining in the teaching of Christ, you're going to abide in both. And to abandon the teaching of the Incarnation is to sin. And to sin is to lose fellowship with Yahweh. Look at 1 John 3.6. Everyone who remains in Him does not sin. 
Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Again, now the word remains here is the Greek word mano, which is John's word for abiding. Abides, has seen, knows are words that John used throughout the epistle to refer to the believer who is walking in fellowship with his Savior. It seems to me that John is saying that to abide in a sinless person would mean you wouldn't be sinning. And if we do sin, we're not no longer abiding in Christ. Notice what John wrote earlier. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. So wouldn't walking in the same way he walked imply sinlessness? It would have to because verse 5 says, in him there is no sin. So the believer who's abiding in Christ doesn't sin. It's not saying the one who abides in him does not keep on sinning. That's a bad translation. He doesn't sin because he's in an abiding relationship. And we said this all through 1 John, but let me remind you, I see abiding, being in an intimate relationship with Christ as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. All Christians are called to abide, to walk as He walked. And at times we do abide in Christ, and we live sinless. We live in righteousness. At other times, we don't abide. We just want to do what we want to do. We want to do what feels good. We want to do what we think will make us happy. And so John says, watch yourselves. Specifically, you're speaking of doctrine, the doctrine of Christology. We need to constantly be on guard against false teaching. Be cautious about what you hear. Be a Berean and take everything you hear to the Word of God. This is why we have to be reading the Word of God over and over. We get familiar with it. Then we hear something, we go, that doesn't seem to line up to me. To fall into false teaching, believers, is to lose your reward. Each one of us, he says, will receive what is due for what we have done. So watch yourselves, believers, because the Lord Himself told us to store up treasure in heaven. And as when we get there, it's hard for me to imagine different levels, different rewards, different privileges. But that seems to be what the Bible teaches. Now, if you don't like that, take it up with your Lord, okay? It's not my plan. Your salvation is free, but now that you have it, He wants you to live for Him. He wants you to use this life that He's given you for His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Again, I just pray that all who hear this would be Bereans, Father. They'd not accept it. They'd not reject it. They'd look into it. Is this truly what the Bible teaches? Father, I thank you for the day and age in which we live. We have so many opportunities to study your word, to look into it, to to dig it up. Give us the desire, Lord, to do that. Amen. Okay, questions? Comments? Gary? Um, Seeing as I have spent most of my life not laying up rewards in heaven, is there, um, does the end Outweigh the beginning? Well, I can't answer that, but I think it's good to finish well. (laughs) If you're in a race, you know, it's how you finish that's really important, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're responsible for what we know, and the more we know, the more responsible we are. And... Well, thanks for making us all responsible. Let's finish well. Well, that's, yeah, that's what it's all about, you know? Mm -hmm. To understand the truth so you can live the truth. Again, it's not about just knowing things. It's about knowing them so you can flush them out. You can live in a way that <clears throat> demonstrates uh, the truth. Yes? So when he used the example for the ring that he gave talents to in the Bible. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so that ties in and certain rewards and certain things that he hated and liked about them not fulfilling Yes, Anthony's question is about the talents, and I think that pictures that whole idea. You know, you've been faithful over a few things. You know, here I put you, Lord, over many things. You know, I, how? Let me tell you something, people. The Bible says very little about heaven because it's beyond our comprehension. It just is, okay? And so, what's going to happen? I don't know, but there seems to indicate there that yes, you you've done good in this life. Here, I'm putting you in charge of ten cities. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Jeff? Well, what about the last guy in that parable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's the doorkeeper. In the, in the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I, I think that the weeping and out of darkness there is the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's, you know, because you weren't faithful with what I gave you, you're going to die, and that doesn't mean they weren't believers. Okay. Yes, Mike. Um, do you think that, uh, that uh, they, they were thinking that uh, that Christ came in the spirit, or that Christ didn't come at all when he says that, that those who deny that Christ came in the flesh? There was two different views held at the time by pre-Gnostics. Some believed that Christ, the Christ, Yeshua was just a man. The Christ spirit came upon him in his baptism and left right before the crucifixion. All right. The others believed. It was just a phantom. He seemed to be, they talked. He wasn't, there was no really issue. He just looked like that. It was a phantom thing. There was, because they just could not accept the idea that God would become flesh because they felt flesh was evil. They had a duality, a Greek duality. All matter is evil. Spirit is good, so you don't combine the two. So he would never combine with man, which is evil. And they were wrong. Okay, I have a, I sympathize with the Christians, or those Christians. Uh, because Rome, because in Paul in Romans, okay, he makes it pretty clear in his arguments there that in the chapters of seven and eight, especially, he talks about uh, that nothing good is in the flesh, nothing good can come from the flesh, you know. So I, I understand oh, yeah. what, what the problem is here. Yep. Because Paul seemed to indicate that there is no, nothing good in his flesh, right? I agree. So, and, and I actually said that last week. I said, you know, these Gnostics are going to be using Scripture, and they're going to say, well, you know, the Bible teaches that flesh is bad, and, you know, this and that. No, Paul says you've got to be careful because the flesh by itself is going to, is pulling you in the wrong direction. So, yes. And, and that's what we have to understand. When the word, the Greek word sarks, flesh, is translated in a lot of different ways. Sometimes sarks is just, that's bad, that's evil, that's temptation to sin. Sometimes sarks just means humanity. Okay? And we have to understand by context, how is he using sarks here? Is it referring to, you know, an evil temptation? Is it referring to just humanity in a sense? So yes, there, listen, every false doctrine is built on Scripture. Okay? They, they're not going to come along and say, well, it's not in here at all. This doesn't talk about it, but I got, well, some would. There's some new idea. But most of them base it, look at Scripture, and they kind of twist it and distort it. And so, here you go. 
So I can I ask another question? Uh-huh. Uh so in the in the glorified body of Christ is resurrected body. Okay. Um it's but it's transformed, right, in a certain way. It, it is no longer flesh and blood, or is it? No, I, I I think Christ has a heavenly body now. We don't enter into the realm, God's realm, the realm of heaven in a physical body. Okay? And Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 13. There's celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies, okay? This is a heavenly body. It's designed to be in heaven. It is a body of some kind. I can't begin to explain to you, but when the angels appear, they manifest. It's like they got a body. God's left heaven and manifested physical form to actually have sex with women and have children. Okay? So there's some kind of substance to this body that I don't understand, but it's not this body. Okay? It's a heavenly body. And when you get there, you'll understand. Okay? <laughs> Till then, you'll probably be in a fog. So is the resurrected body, the one that he was here for the time he was, before he ascended, did it change when he ascended? I believe it did. Okay? So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different opinion on this. The resurrected body. Did he resurrect in his same body? Well, it had scars in it. Yeah, there was an empty tomb and it had nails and stuff, so it was a physical body. And people say, well, that was a spiritual body because he walked through doors. He did that before the resurrection. The crowd went to push him over the cliff and boom, he disappeared in their midst. Okay? So, you know, I, I don't think that proves anything. I think that in the ascension, he received his heavenly body. Uh, again, I, it's beyond my pay grade <laughs> to be able to describe this body because I just, you know, what the scripture tells us, that's the thing. I, I, you know, you go into the area of speculation because you can only stick with what the Bible yeah, tells you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anybody else? Any other questions? Good questions. Good questions. And some didn't recognize him in this new body, correct? Well, and, well, that's the thing. I don't know, was it a new body or not? But, you know. Yes, he's walking along with them and they don't even know who it is. But then he says, it's me. And they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, okay. There's, there's, there's things here, people, like I said, beyond my ability to understand. He was, he was wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, here's a question I can't answer. <laughs> I've heard it said by people who are true believers. The law points to the cross, and the cross points us back to the law. Why do you think church pastors gloss over Acts 15.28 and seem to always point back to the law? I, I don't know. I, I think they're confused. I can, I can tell you why some pastors do that, because there's things in the law they like. Like tithing. tithing. Mm -hmm. That's a pastor's favorite Old Testament law because, hey, look, you got to give and you're a God robber. They go, go to Malachi, they go to all these scriptures and they make you feel guilty. And, you know, they'll, it, your washing machine will break if you don't give God your tithe and he'll take it out of your hide. And, I mean, it just sounds like a heavenly Gestapo agent or something, you know. But they like that because they want their church to be supported. And so they're using that. And so. I sat down with a pastor one night. We were at a retreat together. And we went through the scripture. And I spent probably three hours showing him that tithing 
had nothing to do with Christianity. It's Jewish. It's to take care of the theocracy. There's nothing about a Christian. Giving was always free will. Old covenant, new covenant. Nothing has changed there. Tithing is... And by the end, he was like, man, you're right. You're right. I see that. That's so good. Two weeks later, he gets up and preaches on tithing. And I went to him and I said, come here. I said, what is the deal here? He goes, it may not be right, but it works. And I was like, what? <laughs> Pragmatism, people, that's what most people operate on. Does They don't care if it's true or it's right. They care does it work. And tithing works because most people are afraid. I had my mother come to me one time. Just I'm almost in tears because some, they had some teacher some came to their church and they preached on tithing. And they said, if you have missed tithes over your life, you have to back pay God for all those tithes you missed. And if you don't, you're in danger of hellfire. Oh and I mean, she comes to me and she's all upset. And I said, Mom, wow, that guy's an idiot. Okay? And just had to go through and teach. You know, again, this is where truth sets people free. Okay? And it's really sad. But the church is, that's why, that's a long answer, but I think that's why pastors cling to the law because it's mm-hmm. useful to them. And they also will go back in the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. What's that mean? You better be at church on Sunday. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I want you here on Sunday. I much rather enjoy preaching when I see faces out there. You know, and there's a couple chairs here and I'm just talking to the chairs. That, that doesn't do much for me. Okay, but I know you're out there, so that's always encouraging to me. But there's just all kinds of reasons, you know. But it's usually for self selfish reasons, I guess you would say, you know. Because when you set people free, well, that's a dangerous thing, you know. Because then they don't know how much to give if you don't tell them, you know. I remember <laughs> when I left Atlanta Shores Baptist Church, where we took an offering every time you stepped in the door. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, Wednesday night. I mean, you couldn't go there without taking an offering, you know. People would roll up something and put it because you're like, how many times i got to give here? Well, when we started the church, I said, no, we're not taking any offerings. We're going to get a wooden box, and that's the original wooden box back there, and put it in the back of the church, and that's it. And my wife was like, how are we going to live? And I'm like, either God's going to take care of us, or we're going to do something else. That's it, because I just—that's one of the things that sickened me about the church was the whole financial issue. I just wanted to get away from that. And you know what? We've been 24 years this year, and God has provided for us the whole time. I mean, incredibly, supernaturally, remarkably. You know, I am still—I still stand amazed at the money that people send us that we didn't ask for, and it's just obviously they're being ministered to. So. You know, and that's the principle. If you're being taught, if God is taking care of you, if He's teaching you, then you give. If not, then you don't. And, yeah, it's it's very humbling to me. You know, you don't need to beg people to give. You just give them what God told you to give them, and then I guess God will take care of you. And that's how I felt. I felt like, you know, either God takes care of us as a church, or we'll go do something else. And I never would have imagined His grace. You know. Anybody else?
All right, another question. What is the difference between flesh and bones? Luke 24, 36-43. Scripture testifies that Christ has a body of flesh and bones and flesh and blood. Um, yes, that's talking about the body after the resurrection. That's when, why I think that he has a different body, that that body left at the ascension. He moved into heaven. Just like when we go to heaven, we're not taking this body with us. Okay? And I think that, you know, when he resurrected, he resurrected, because there were still scars. He could show them, this is me. And he had to, Christ was different in the sense that he, he, his body had to be resurrected because it was promised, first of all, he wouldn't see corruption. And secondly, as a testimony that, look, this is the body. There's nail prints are there. Spear holes in the side. This is the Christ. And that's why he told Thomas, look it, stick your hand here, pick it, feel it. This is me. I think it was the same body. I think that body changed. 